Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Mariel Schindler, the author of The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and The Search for Truth. This is her first book. She's a lawyer in England. Thanks so much for being here, Ms. Schindler. Thanks, Evan. It's lovely to be here. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. When I hear the name Oscar Schindler, I immediately think, probably like many of you, of the incredible movie about the heroism of a man who tried to save as many Jews from the Nazis as he could. Who wouldn't want to be connected by blood to someone who had done something like that? Evidently, Mariel Schindler's parents, Kurt and Mary, really wanted to claim that connection. The claim is part of a larger tale of intrigue that Kurt wanted to build for his family. The Schindlers of Europe not only had prestige, they had a history of being at the nucleus of community. Before we get into the specifics of your family story, what makes some people wish they were connected to something so grand you don't even need an explanation when you hear the family name? I think that's a great question. I think, I think it's largely born out of perhaps um, a sense that they, didn't, they weren't doing so well themselves. You know, uh, my father lived in a time when he grew up, when he was wealthy, he was the sole child of, of wealthy parents in a small town everyone knew who he was and his family were famous within their small town and with the arrival of the nazis they lost all of that and i think ever after that he was chasing down assets and creating links as you say to incredibly well-known people so I mean, it wasn't just Oscar Schindler that he claimed um, familial connections with. He claimed kinship with Bruno Kreisky, the first president of, uh, the, of Austria after the Second World War. He claimed kinship with uh, Franz Kafka. He claimed kinship, bizarrely of all, perhaps, with Hitler's Jewish doctor. And I think anyone and everyone who came into his orbit and who might have been a Schindler or might not have been a Schindler, frankly, he claimed. We are going to play a game a little later that's related or not related. And I have some of those names listed down, so we can play that in a a few minutes. But um, how old were you when you first started hearing these tales of grandeur from your father? Um, That, yes, Oscar Schindler is, as you put it, kinship uh, with us. Um, How did you handle that information growing up? I think I was really quite small when he started to spin these tales. I mean, my father was very, he was very inadequate in many ways. Um, uh, Inadequate in his relationship with truth in that he lied a lot. Um, But he also elaborated and embroidered his family tales so that we never quite knew what was true and what was not true. As to how I coped, I think that as a small child, I think you believe your parents. And there comes a point when you're in the outside world sufficiently to start to measure your parents against the people that you're meeting in the outside world, against teachers, against your peer group, against your 
peer group at work, against your partners at work, against your clients. And then you start to realise how, I suppose, strange your, your parents are, I think, in that. And, and, and many of us go through that. Um, it's Not just that me. I'm... My parents are way normal, way, way normal. <laughs> But many people do go through that. They believe, they're, and then they're, they're, they're going to hear this and laugh. I, that, that joke was for their benefit. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I think that you you then move into teenagers in teenagerhood, and and I think at that point you start to question, and you start to question whether that what they're telling you is true, and to you know kick against their rules and all of the teenage rebellion things, except mine was much more extreme because I was questioning everything by the time I was a teenager, you know, where we'd come from, what we were doing. And I never got straight answers from my father. So continually, I was essentially discounting what he said. Everything had to be dealt with, with a shovel full of salt, as we would say. So we need to introduce certainly the lost cafe Schindler, the cafe itself, but introduce us to your mom and dad because they're big personalities here. Your dad, especially big personality in this book. Uh, Explain the intrigue surrounding Kurt and when you realize that the sort of web that he had built needed to be a book. Okay, so... My, as I said, my father had a difficult relationship with truth. He spout, he's, he, he's tended to spin all these tales. And, as, and after he died in 2017, I was left with all these tales ghosting around my head. My father died destitute. There were no assets to claim from him. Uh, what I did inherit was 13 photo albums and stacks and stacks and stacks of documents, all dating back to, you know, pre-First World War, First World War, Second World War, etc. So, um, and I, I was intrigued by the photo albums. I was then intrigued. I was drawn into a story of trying to work out and honour the people in the photos, because like so many photo albums, that there were no names written in, into them. So you've asked me to introduce my, my parents, but in a sense, I need to go back two more generations, because I was dealing with photos that were pre-First World War Austria, um, so I was dealing with photos, black, small black and white photos, and I was intrigued as to who my grandparents were, where they'd come from. And essentially, they were distillers. They'd arrived in Innsbruck, set up a business, and you know had created a thriving business in a very small town. And this is the Cafe Schindler. So my grand, yes, my they originally arrived in Innsbruck in the sort of eighteen. 70s 80s so at that point they didn't have the cafe they just set up a distillery and when my grandfather arrived he he joined the family business then you get the first world war happening and i know this is a history podcast so that's a really you know the first world war for austria and that part of austria was particularly brutal in that that the soldiers fought up in the mountains um, on the southern front. And that's a front that doesn't really get talked about. You're lucky in that, um, obviously, you've got a farewell to arms, uh, which is one of the very few books that describes what actually Hemingway's book describes what that war was like. And my grandfather survived that war. He was very lucky. One of his brothers did get killed and returned to a destitute country. So now we're starting to get into what the cafe and he, his, his reaction in a sense to arriving back to a country that was destitute with people starving was to do something very frivolous to set up a cafe to offer cake and dancing and good liqueurs and home-cooked food to the locals 
and he did a he set up this amazing venue that was a really beautiful place and everyone knew it everyone went there roll on to the nazis arriving in 1938 obviously we got the cafe taken away from us they were a jewish family and they largely fled to, to london my father in all of this mix my father was born in 1925 so my father grew up in a wealthy sort of interwar period and then arrived in london as a refugee essentially penniless and i think that's what marked him so you've asked me to introduce him he was a mercurial character he was tall he was good looking he was a great raconteur but he didn't always tell the truth he embroidered things he elaborated things he told things that were to his advantage and um he was also a, a, a jew who had escaped the holocaust age 13 he had survived not all of his relations survived um but he grew up very much as someone who was essentially a jew hater in the sense that he he hid his background he married out he married my mother who was a beautiful english rose blonde haired blue-eyed um as if he was wanting to really leave his jewish heritage behind him and um i think between the two of them you know they had a couple of kids and he always said to us never tell anyone you're jewish that's a, it's, it's got to stay a secret and that was the foundation of our childhood is never ever ever telling one about your heritage why I, did he ever well, say why in some no he never said why he never explained anything um but but why was he doing that so he was a 13 year old being jewish was dangerous when he was a kid so i can see a little bit why he might say be careful who you say this to but not entirely denying it i mean we were, weren't brought up jewish he made no effort to teach us our heritage or tradition and in a sense um I was always rebellious and I was always interested in, in, in my background. Um, and then married a Jewish man, much to his surprise. So in a sense, he, he, he tried to protect us. He was very controlling, very protective of us. That may be one explanation. Um, but a difficult, mercurial, maddening man, because he never, he told these stories. And any time I asked, but how are we related to all these people? what is this story he never had any detail it was always oh well you know he never you never, you never got any detail from him and that was it, it was the fact i was left with all these anecdotes that made me go and try and search out the truth i also knew he had fallen out with everyone so everyone was a you know was a was a, was a charlatan and had double crossed him i mean very paranoid behavior and so after he died in 2017 I started to set about reconnecting with people, and this had to be done really delicately. So it was you know, finding people on the internet, sending an email, cautiously explaining who I was. I was Kurt Schindler's daughter, with whom they'd fallen out dramatically 30, 40, 50 years previously. And you but, couldn't have done this when he was alive, right? I mean, it just felt no too, yeah, no. Absolutely no way. Um, and I would you know, make that connection, and then I'd say, well, could I call you? And I then set up a telephone call and I would ring them. And I had these extraordinary reactions from people. So I talk about one in, in the book where I, I talk to a cousin who is incredibly you know, cautious with me on the phone. And, but he does say he's got lots of really interesting family photos. And I go, well, I'd love to see them. And 
almost I've never done anything like this in my life I flew out and I, I went to see this chap and you know he you know I'd flown 3,000 miles to see him I arrive on his doorstep he opens the door and the very first thing he says to me is yeah I remember your dad he was a crook and a shyster that was literally his welcome as I arrived on his doorstep. So that was the level of antipathy that my father evoked in other people. And then he invited me in and we looked at the photos and we looked at our shared great grandparents and we've become friends. But I had to overcome the incredibly difficult feuds that my father had had with a whole range of people and that he wasn't the only one and gently, gently draw the family together again that had been very scattered by the Shoah, by, by the Holocaust. So everyone thinks that their family story is the most interesting and that there could be a book about my family's history. And I'm one of those people. I think it would be fascinating to write a book titled Axelbank as the only family we know of with that name. Um, and who are we? How did we get that name? I don't know that we even really know the answer to that. Um, uh, what made you say this story can be sold? This story is one that people need to read. There's two different questions. So in a sense, I'm a little bit of an accidental author. I did actually set out to write this for our kids. I was maybe going to go and photocopy six copies, one for set for our kids, one set for my sister's kids. I mean, literally, it was going to be a mix of recipes, photos and the stories. And as I tugged on each individual bit of narrative in here and started talking to people, people started saying to me, this is really interesting. You should write a book. And in a sense, I was intrigued by that. So I, I then started to write it more as a narrative for others. Now, why should other people read it is a different question. And I think it, you know, today is, today is International Holocaust Memorial Day. It's a very important day to be doing this particular podcast and a very solemn day and you know we have very very few survivors left of that era and you know this is a an important story because it's a different way of framing the holocaust story it's framing it through essentially through the eyes of a very very loved institution the cafe and it's just it's not the only way of framing it by any stretch of the imagination but it's a way of framing it, a way of explaining the story as to what happens when you get a degree of anti-Semitism or actually xenophobia arising in a community, in a small community. And what I think is particularly fascinating about it as a case study is that this was a tiny community. There were less than 500 Jews in Innsbruck. They did not even have a synagogue. They were totally assimilated. They had a prayer room, but they were assimilated. They, they lived very peaceably amongst their fellow Innsbruckers. And so this is very different to the story of Vienna or Berlin, where the Jews were in a, you know, Vienna had 10% of the population were Jewish in Vienna. So this is a very different story. And you know, Innsbruck was a rich town, there wasn't the degree of poverty that you had in, in Vienna, and by and large, the Jews rubbed along with the Aryans perfectly fine. Um, 
I mean, there were simmering things under the under the surface, but you know, by and large, they rubbed along well together. And what is particularly poignant about the November pogrom about Kristallnacht is that my grandfather was beaten up by people he knew. This was not some random act of violence. This demonstrates how essentially anti-Semitism and generally xenophobia, even in a small town, even when you are known, even when you are liked, can get completely out of hand. And it's it, it, it's just a different way of framing that story with some quite interesting sub facts, if you like. We did an episode, gosh, maybe six, eight months ago about a, um, a massacre that um, occurred during the Holocaust where the people doing the shooting had grown up with the people who they were shooting. Um, I never forgot that detail. People, they knew each other, you know, they knew each other and wound up, you know, being at the edge of a pit together with one side with guns and the other side, you know, begging for their lives. Um, most of the people we interview on the podcast are full-time writers, academics, professors, um, popular historians. You're a lawyer by trade, an employment lawyer in, in England. What are you doing here? Um, what skills does a lawyer have that lend themselves to discovering the family tree and the family history? Evan, I've got full-on imposter syndrome because I've listened to lots of your previous podcasts. So don't oh, worry, you, you are fueling my imposter syndrome. What the <laughs> hell are you doing writing this book? Um, I think a lot of the skills as a lawyer uh, mean that I'm fairly persistent in trying to, you know, work out what the truth is. I'm not frightened of a pile of documents or a difficult problem. Um, I think I can communicate reasonably well, so I can, you know, I've managed to get people to talk to me in this book who absolutely did not want to talk to me. Um, one of the people, um, you know, will, will come on maybe to, to, to the Kristallnacht story, but one of the people I spoke to was my father's psychiatrist. And, you know, I sent a couple of emails sending him the psychiatric report he'd written 30 years previously. And there was no response. You know, I rang him up and he was definitely what I would call brusque on the phone. <laughs> definitely didn't want to talk to me. But eventually I managed to convince him to talk to me and I wasn't going to be suing him. I just wanted to know a little bit about what he thought about my father and, you know, without breaching you know, patient, patient. I was going to ask about that. Doesn't that extend to death? Yeah. Apparently not. He wasn't bothered about that. I hope it that. does. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, I managed to get him to talk to me on the basis that, you know, I was a truth speaker and, um, you know, reluctantly he did talk to me. So I think the skills of a lawyer to try and get to the heart of something and synthesize a lot of fact and explain it, I think those help. Um, I, I think that I had to learn a lot about writing. It's very different writing a witness statement. You know, witness statements, you know, you in a, in a court case, you there's essentially two ways of formulating them. There's either chronological or thematic, you know, but you're normally dealing with maybe 20 to 50 pages, maybe a bit more, but that's, that's not 120,000 words, which is what a book is. So, you know, there's a lot, to learn in the craft of putting that together. I learned a huge amount as I was writing. 
I, I want to hear the places you went and visited, but I'm going to, I want to find them out uh, as I ask this question. Um, uh, I have um, stood with my grandmother at her high school that she attended, you know, 60, 70 years before we had stood there together. And I imagine, and I imagined what it was like to see her as a student walking around Washington Heights with a backpack and, you know, going up and down these grand stairs at George Washington High School. Um, I have stood at Ellis Island and thought about what it might have looked like when my relatives, my ancestors came here in, early in the early 1900s. There's a certain feeling that you get when you are standing in a place that you know your own family members, some of them you knew, some of them you didn't know, who... You, you know that they were there, standing there, you know, 100 years before or 50, 60 years before. Um, what was it like for you to travel around and visit these places and know that your family had these roots there that were very profound and, um, you know, they never really knew they would be investigated the way you decided to investigate them? It's very profound treading in the footsteps of ancestors. It is a very profound experience. And I did it in a number of ways. Not only did I drag my family up mountains that my grandfather might or might not have fought on, on, on the Southern Front, um, and visited a lot of the, you know, very sort of trenches, basically. I mean, they were not really trenches. They were little tiny stone walls that people cowered behind whilst they were trying to kill each other. And that's very, very profound doing that. Um, I think it's, and you're right, that you know, a visit to Ellis Island or a visit to you know, a concentration camp, I've been to Auschwitz, for example. Mm. Um, it, it's the most extraordinary experience. And it, I think what it does is it fuels the imagination in the sense that you can read about these places, but it's never the same as going there. So walking around Innsbruck, Innsbruck I knew very well because I'd actually spent five years there in, in, my, in my sort of teenager. Um, and I, re-walking those streets, knowing the history was very much a sense of re-inking my own memories um, and, and understanding what had gone on in the streets was very, very interesting and very, it certainly affects how I feel about place now. Have you been to Venice? Yes, yes. There's a ghetto there, a Jewish yeah. ghetto there. And I, I, you're, yeah, you're smiling. We can see each other, so you're smiling. You must have been there. Um, yeah. I, I remember going there and seeing these, um, these drab walls and realizing that the Jews who lived there were closed into those walls for centuries. Generations and generations of people were never allowed to leave that ghetto. And I remember the feeling on my feet Suddenly, you, you know, you kind of stop looking around and you could feel your, and, you, and I could, feel, I mean, of course, I was wearing modern sneakers, but the feeling on, on my feet and knowing that that in some way that was the same feeling those Jews had had who were literally imprisoned in their own homes. Um, that's just a thought, but it reminds me hearing you yeah. go around it, Europe like that. Incredibly profound. It's walking, walking the streets, walking the mountains. Um, visiting camps but even tiny things like walking into a shop that was a shop that belonged to part of my family obviously owned by someone different now and coming back to the cafe that's it's very emotional um you know the fact that there is now still a cafe named schindler on that high street 
in the exact same building that my grandfather founded that cafe. And this year, I don't have shares in it, I don't own it, but this year it celebrates its 100th anniversary. And it's the only previously Jewish owned business that is still going. Let's lighten, let's lighten things up a little bit. What do you imagine a night out there was like? What was it like to go out at the cafe, Cafe Schindler? Oh, it started early evening. Maybe you went for a little bit of a meal there. You arrived at the, on the ground floor. You went up a beautiful sweeping staircase. You were met by the Metro D. Your coat was taken. You were ushered to a banquette. You were served food. Um, there would probably be, if it was afternoon, there'd be nice kind of classical music, piano music playing live. Um, by the evening, the tone would change slightly. My grandfather loved music, and this was one of the very first places you heard jazz in Western Austria. So, you know, they had a jazz band playing there. Summer evening, the jazz music would be floating out into the street. There was not one, but two ballrooms, so you could whirl the night away. And when I was there in the early 1980s at school, I mean, the, the Café Schindler had not existed for decades, and yet people still talked about it. It still meant something. So when I gave my name, Muriel Schindler, they would go all misty-eyed on me and go, oh, I remember the café. I used to meet my boyfriend there. And, you know, it really was a, a central hub, um, and it was presided over by my grandfather. And so he was a very prominent, very loved person. I don't know what the equivalent is in Tampa, but it's, it's that a very central institution, basically, loved mm. by everyone. I have to think about that. What is the equivalent in Tampa? Right now, it might be Amelie Arena, where the Tampa Bay Lightning play with two Stanley Cups in a row. That might be the, the central mm. uh, point of community, which is interesting to think about. Um, all right, Oscar Schindler, what did you discover about your dad's claims this is the game by the way related this or not the related <laughs> the kinship game um, so oscar schindler my father always said oh, of course we're related we came from the same part of upper silesia you know etc the reality is as we all know from the film that oscar schindler was a card carrying nazi I mean, he happened to be a good nazi at the end but he was a businessman he was a card carrying nazi and not Jewish. Now, he may have been Jewish generations previously, and the, you know, the Nuremberg laws might have, he might have squeaked through that. But frankly, um, I don't believe we're related. Um, or if, if we are related, it is so many generations back that it'd be crazy to say we were related. Just because we have the same name doesn't mean we're related. So slaying that one, answer, Oscar Schindler, no, not related. Um another name came up that I just, I, I, it was so sort of random. Um, Hitler's family doctor, Dr. Bloch. Um, who was he? And I guess play another round of related or not related. And what a strange person to want to be associated with. So who was Dr. Bloch? Dr. Bloch was a very kind doctor who lived in Linz in Upper Austria where Hitler grew up. And he was Jewish, he trained in Prague and decided to settle in Linz, which is not very far from Prague. And he, you know, in 1907, in January 1907, 
a middle-aged woman walks into his practice complaining of terrible chest pains. So he takes her details, he has an idea of what's amiss, he takes her details, her name, Clara Hitler. He examines her, realises that she has pretty advanced breast cancer and says, I will give you some pain um, medicaments, but go away and come back with your family and I will explain what needs to happen. So a couple of days later, she comes back with young Hitler in tow, age 17, and the good Dr. Bloch explains that um, Clara Hitler will need a double mastectomy and you know that there is a small chance this will help save her but in reality this is a very serious very serious illness and as Bloch says in his autobiography I knew this was pretty much a death sentence in those days. So um, he, he describes young Hitler as uh, pale, uh, tearful about his mother and who are, and, and, and a boy who adores his mother and is deeply upset by this diagnosis. Anyway, young Hitler says everything must be done to save my mother and the good Dr. Bloch swings into action, organises the double mastectomy which happens within days. He is present during the operation. He immediately after the operation goes and explains to the children that it's gone as well as can be expected and then he is a very devoted carer for Clara Hitler during the rest of her life. And she, she eventually dies about, I don't know, 10, 11 months later, she makes a little bit of a recovery, but as with many of these things, she had advanced breast cancer and she died. Um, Hitler was profoundly grateful for that, for the, this Jewish doctor's treatment of his mother. He went to pay the bill and he shook his hand and said, the Hitler family will be forever grateful. And roll on, this was all 1907-1908, so roll on to 1938, Hitler arrives back in Austria after the Anschluss, he's now, he's Chancellor of Germany, he's just taken over Austria, he is the big man. He arrives to tumultuous welcome from the crowds, they all adore him. One of the things he asks when he gets to, get to Linz is, is my, is my doctor still around? Is he still alive, the good Dr. Bloch? And he's told that Dr. Bloch, Jewish Dr. Bloch, is indeed still alive. And he, he sort of pauses for a moment and a number of people report this conversation back to Dr. Bloch. And he put, Hitler pauses and says, hmm, if all Jews were like Dr. Bloch, we wouldn't have a problem with anti-Semitism. So we wouldn't have a problem with the Jews. And it's this peculiar link that that the, the doctor has to Hitler that effectively saves his life because he's not affected by any of the measures that are brought in to oust the Jews from their homes, to contain them, to cancel their rights. But obviously, eventually, there are no Jews left in Linz to treat and he eventually emigrates uh, to the US. He arrives at Ellis Island like your, your relatives and he, he eventually emigrates to New York and dies in, in the late 1940s. So what's the relationship to us? Well, my father always claimed, first of all, that this story tr was true, which I didn't believe. And second of all, that Dr. Bloch was his uncle, which he was. <laughs> so it wasn't until I put the family story together and realized and actually did the family tree that I realized it, this really bizarre story was actually true. And my father, boasted about it in a sense that he again 
he in some way it added to his intrigue his 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 importance if you like i hope i'm saying this next name so related is the answer to the question with yeah. uh, dr yeah, block so that, Related or not related, Franz Kafka. Am I saying the name right? Franz Kafka? Yeah. The writer, so, right? The writer, yes. The Prague writer, obviously very famous for the trial and metamorphosis. The metamorphosis is the one that people, most people will know on this, on this podcast. And um, the answer is yes, but very, very distantly. Um, I've got uh, a bunch of cousins in the US who are called Kafka and who are related. Um, very, you know, they're reasonably closely related. I mean, yes. So the answer is yes, but distantly. So that one. Uh, Alma Schindler, an Austrian composer, related or not related? No, not Jewish, not related, nothing to do with us. But your dad liked the name. Yeah, yeah. She was <laughs> Alma. Mar she became Alma Mahler. So she was. She was married to Gustav Mahler. She was a virulent anti-Semite, but always ended up marrying Jewish men. Take these four people. What does their collective profile tell you about who your dad wanted to be? A hero, someone who was Hitler's doctor, a writer, and a composer. Put them all together. What does that tell us about what your dad wanted for his family? He wanted to reestablish the family as a wealthy, well-known, well-regarded family, basically. Something that he personally had singularly failed to do so in a sense this was all camouflage for his own inadequacy as a businessman as a father that's i think what was going on uh, as as we mentioned you're a, a, an employment lawyer by trade uh in in britain um i was fascinated though by your website because you have a couple of very basic categories there uh you know contact and interviews you're doing and about me kind of thing but then you also have your cafe recipes on your website. Why was that important for you to have recipes from the Lost Cafe Schindler on the website? And how can we tell our family stories through the food our ancestors served? I think food's quite important. It's quite redolent. People have family recipes. And um, I think the recipes on the one hand evoke the cafe really well and to some extent people are sometimes frightened of baking these are not difficult recipes they you know they're they're recipes that you know people talk about strudel the stuff that you buy frozen in supermarkets is pretty nasty and yet you can make really nice strudel really quite easily so it was trying to sort of get across that um this cuisine this central european um coffee house cuisine is not that difficult really um you just need to be shown how to do it and i think that's it's quite evocative food is always quite evocative but it's how it's giving people a chance to have a piece of this cafe that you have such reverence for right yeah um how did you feel after you put this book together how did you feel about your family and having been able to track all these different lines down, did you have a different feeling once you were able to say, this is, this is book, this is a book that I've done? I, yes, I did. Um, I spent a lot of my adulthood being quite angry with my father, quite confused about the things he'd said, and quite resentful that he wasn't the father I wanted him to be. 
And um, I think what I've got to now is the fact that he he was pretty flawed in many ways. Um, but what he's given me is an incredibly interesting, rich history. And it's almost as if he was gifting me this puzzle to, to, to solve. And that I've really, really enjoyed doing. And so I'm now much calmer about it. I don't, I'm not angry anymore. And I think to that extent, it's been a therapeutic exercise. Um, but also I've learned a lot. I've, I've pulled together a family that didn't, you know, didn't know each other. And now we're, we're in regular contact. I didn't know I had any relations in the US. And I suddenly got all these cousins who were really happy uh, to be in contact with me. And that's lovely. That's really, really nice. Uh, this is kind of a playful question. Who do you wish you could tell your children or, you know, you were related to? Oh, that's an interesting question. I haven't ever been asked that. Um, I suppose I'd go for interesting writers, wouldn't I? Mm. Um, I'd quite like, you know, the Kafka, Franz Kafka to be more closely related yeah. or, um, you know. But you can't be... steal that one. You're, someone already tried that in your family, right? I know, I know. Um, who do I wish otherwise? I'd... I think probably writers I really respect and are mm. interested in. Uh, I'm doing a, um, for International Holocaust Memorial Day, I'm doing a, doing something on W.G. Siebel, for example, a very interesting man, an interesting writer. So interesting writers, I think, would I go for. This is kind of an inside baseball question in the publishing world. Um, but could this book have been sold to a publisher if you had a different last name? That's interesting. Um, possibly not. I mean... You know, we played a lot with um, the title, you know, we went through a lot of titles. I mean, it was very obvious to me what the title needed to be. But, you know, was it going to be, you know, Strudel and the SS? Was it going to be Nazis and Nusstorte? Was it, you know, um, um, you know, this playing with food and the Nazis was really freaking my publisher out. <laughs> I can see um, that. I, I understand. I have sympathy for yeah, it. Completely inappropriate with some of that, you know, was, but you know, we were being playful, as you say. And I think, um, does it, does it, I think what your question gets at is, does it hang on the coattails of, of a much more famous story of Oscar Schindler? And yes, it does. But on the other hand, it is my name. So I don't mind it playing on the coattails, particularly when people understand that there's a little bit of a joke here because my father always said we were related and we weren't. So I think it's quite—it's from that point of view, it's quite fun. Could it have been sold? Well, if I was called, you know, Meryl Smith, possibly not. Um, it adds—it just adds to the intrigue, I suppose. Um, I broke the rules a little bit with this podcast because I normally do America's top nonfiction authors, but we're we're in Europe today. Um, so let's ask an America-centric question: What do Americans get right? and wrong about World War II history? Um, I think what Americans, and this goes for all of the allied powers, to be honest, get wrong is uh, they don't know about the Evian Conference. And I think understanding what was actually going on is really really important that we sort of go through this so 
you know, 1933, Hitler comes to power. Everyone knows that in Germany, becomes the chancellor, fine. 1938, you have the Anschluss and you have the pogrom in, in November in Kristallnacht. And quite often I'm said, people say to me, oh, they, they were killing Jews. They were not killing Jews during Kristallnacht. The idea was violence and destruction to drive them out of Austria and Germany. They, it was all about taking them out of the country and encouraging them to leave without their assets, obviously. So that I think people always think that the camps happened much earlier than they did. Yes, people were arrested, but they weren't sent to death camps. They were trying to clear the Jews out. Then you get the Evian conference and, you know, America sends not a top ranked diplomat, but someone who's, you know, medium ranking to it. And 30 nations stand up and wring their hands about the fact that, you know, Germany and Austria is being really nasty to the Jews and doesn't want them, but actually we don't want them either. And there's this sense of, you know, no one taking responsibility. So the Americans stick to their quota, which I think was 30,000 Jews, which was the same as pre-1938. And other countries stand up and go, oh, it's dreadful what the Germans are doing, but we don't want to import this problem into our country either. And the Nazis watch this and go, well, you don't want them either. Well, you know, we're going to do away with them. And it's a very, you know, there's a moment where internationally we could have acted together. And that was a monumental failure of di diplomacy and a monumental failure of humanity, basically. I think about those boats that were sitting right off the coast of my state with yeah. loaded with Jews and literally turned back around. Yeah. And that we, you know, this sense, oh, it was the Germans and they killed lots of Jews. Of course they did. Yes, of course the fault lies primarily with them. But the rest of the world did watch this go and, and they, they, you know, there were Jews like my, the ones in my family who didn't escape, um, who ended up in, 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 in Theresienstadt and in Auschwitz. Um, they had their exit papers. They were ready to leave. They had nowhere to go. And I think that's the bit that often in America and amongst the other allied powers, they just don't tip quite take account of it. We celebrate, you know, the kinder transport, the 10,000 kids who arrived here unaccompanied. All of that is fantastic, amazing heroism. But fundamentally, the Evian Conference was a monumental failure of diplomacy. When I travel, I generally travel because I like to sit around. So I go to, to somewhere and hopefully sit there and sit by the pool and have a beverage or two. Um, I am torn about whether I want to make a trip to visit a concentration camp, to visit Auschwitz. I've done lots of thinking about them. I've done lots of reading about them. Is it important for someone who's Jewish like myself or any person, any American, anyone to go and visit and stand on that ground where all this happened? Yes, absolutely yes. It is a profoundly peculiar experience visiting Auschwitz. Um, and obviously people are visiting today, um, you know, today is the, the, the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz by 
um, the first troops who walked in through the gates. And so today is a very special day. Um, and um, why is it important? I think it, it's a very strange place, Auschwitz. It was a temporary camp, obviously. So every single bit of barbed wire is replaced, has been replaced. Every, every wooden barrack has been rebuilt. The Arbeit macht frei, the, the, the gate that you know, the, the, you know, the, everyone sees in photos, that was bombed by the Allies. It's been rebuilt. So you go, you have to go to it and understand that what you're seeing is not original. But at the same time, it's incredibly evocative. And you can walk around the barracks and it, it, it hits people in various ways. I've talked to lots of people about trips they've made to camps. And you know, the museum is fine, but then they see the pond where they put the ashes and suddenly they're just completely distraught. So it, it's a very, it, it's very evocative and you, it's a very special place and it hasn't quite decided whether it's a theme park because everything has been rebuilt or whether it's a museum or whether it's a holy place or and, and it hasn't quite decided sometimes how it's treated politically. So the Poles who look after Auschwitz, the Polish government, have now their own issues around anti-Semitism and rewriting of the war. And some of the some of the labeling there when you when certainly when we went was very much around the Poles who had died and nothing about, you know. Jews or homosexuals or I mean it may have changed it's a while since I've been um, and I think the way history is reported which is very much a topic for your your podcast I think the way in which we commemorate history and report history is incredibly important and it's a study you know it's something worth studying in and of itself I talk quite a lot in the book about memorials and how some of the things that I have seen to commemorate the, 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 the Second World War and what happened in Innsbruck. And they say more about the moment in which they're erected often than what they're originally commemorating. And there's this, extra, I mean, there's an extraordinary, there were camps all over the place. There was a camp in Innsbruck, but no one knows about it. And there's this extraordinarily poor memorial of the camp which basically says that this is a memorial to patriots who died here and were incarcerated here. These were not patriots, these were Jews. <laughs> the few Jews that lived in Innsbruck plus a few others. It doesn't mention the word Jews. Would your dad read your book and what would he think of your effort to reconstruct all of the, tell, the tall tales that he told to investigate them? Well, being a bragger, he would love the fact that there was a book out there with the words right. Cafe Schindler on it. And the fact it was lost, he would buy into that. The, if he had, I think he was a bit on, sort of had ADHD because he never really sat down and read stuff in full. If he actually read any of the book, I would be quite clear that he would reach for the nearest lawyer and sue me. <laughs> I didn't expect that answer. Um, What's next for you uh, when you, in between cases, in between settlements, in between courtroom appearances or however court work is done these days uh, in the age of COVID in, in Britain, uh, are you going to write another book? Are you going to take on another project like this? What's next? 
I absolutely love the process of researching and writing. Um, it's a quite a full on thing to do if you've got an already full on job. Um, I was incredibly lucky to have a sabbatical and to, to sort of do most of it during the sabbatical. Um, as to next projects, I've got some ideas. I think it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that if you write one book, you're going to write another one. Um, I think you have to know why you're writing something for publication. But I've got some ideas I'm exploring. Um, uh, which are which are interesting. I'm off to some interesting archives in March to have a look at what they've got. So I'll see. I'll see where it takes. I, I love the writing journey, so it's it's fine. But you're not going to be specific about which archives. Uh, there are archives in Manchester. They're actually about um, a Victorian playwright uh, who's related to me. So um, it's a different side of the family and just interesting. I think. More stories of who's related to who. I love it. Uh, Muriel Schindler, author of The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I think that's really fun. Check out the book. Check out her website, MarielSchindler.com. She's on Twitter, at Mariel Schindler. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.